going while the plates are going around. Um, I think you probably saw in the, in the worship guide uh, that there was a child dedication, parent-child dedication at the 9 a.m. service. Uh, the Kozlowskis were here with sweet Clary, uh, Clarabelle Alice Kozlowski. And, uh, and so I don't know why I'm bringing this up. It probably just stirs like, oh, we missed it in you. Um, but I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to remind you what a gift it is when God grants children uh, into the families of our church. What a, what a special and unique thing it is that a child would be raised and be around people who are committed to the gospel, to speak truth. And one of the commitments that we made as a church when, when Kyle and Nikki came, came forward this morning, one of the commitments that we made of, as a church to them is that we would be consistent in praying for them. And that when possible and where, where we came in contact with their family, with their children, that we would be making every effort to speak the truth of Christ uh, to those kids. And so I didn't want you to be left out in that part of it either. Uh, I want to remind you again and again and again, uh, when we are are gifted children. And that really ought to be the posture that Christians have toward children. They are an inheritance, they're a heritage, an inheritance from the Lord. Uh, that that is a special and unique thing. And so the invitation to you would be, when you see little ones around, and I know this is entirely self-serving because I have three little boys, when you see little ones around, uh, their parents are praying for these children, their parents are speaking the gospel to these kids, and they need your help. They need you to declare to even the littlest ones around here what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And so let me invite you to evangelism of our, of our children. Uh, I think that's partly the message and the sweetness that we saw with Kozlowski's when they came this morning. And so I just wanted to point that out uh, as we turn to Acts chapter 3. So Acts 3, uh, if you are, are new here, you've visited in the last number of weeks, you know that we're beginning a series that we'll probably spend probably 10 months, I think, in the book of Acts. We've been walking through uh, Acts from the first chapter on, and what we have seen is the growth, and I guess you could probably say more than growth, this is like pituitary gland issue kind of growth, uh, an explosion of new life in the beginning of the church. Um, I said earlier in sort of a, a sort of a, an advertising kind of way that the life that we're seeing, this organic growth, is, uh, is maybe much like the, the lettuce bulbs and flowers that are coming up from Midtown Community Garden on the corner of Ninth and Pine, right? So I thought that was like a Truman Show kind of ad a little bit. Uh, that's the kind of growth that we're seeing. In other words, because the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was not in vain, and because he has been exalted and seated at the right hand of God, because the Spirit of God has come, then God builds his church, and it's inevitable that the church is unconquered and that if you are here and you're wondering, is this a place that I can rest? Is this a place that I can, can stake my life on this Jesus and on His church? What we are seeing in the beginnings, the rumblings of the church in Acts is that God's gospel, His truth, is a safe haven of rest. It is a place of strength and His church is unconquered because the gospel is true. That's what we found so far. And now we're beginning Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading right there in the first verse. We're going to go all the way through. This is basically one episode. There's two major things that take place, but it's basically one episode that we're going to encounter in Acts chapter 3. So let me read. I'd invite you to read with me. There's a black Bible in front of you. If you need one, take that. It's yours if you need one. This is the third chapter of the book of Acts. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. 
And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat on the, at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God, for, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came under him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. God, help. Help us, your people. Help us to see marvelous and wonderful things from your word. Give us eyes to see. I pray you deliver us from all the distractions and dullness of our week. God, all the temptations toward apathy in our hearts. All the ways in which we are tempted to have more wonder and awe and astonishment at the things of this world rather than the eternal promises that you've made in Christ. God, help me. I pray that you would keep me from falsehood. Help us all to come underneath your word, not alongside as critics, not over the top in authority over, but God, underneath. Would you speak? Would you move through this word and transform us and make us 
more grateful for the righteousness of Jesus given to us even as sinners. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to try to summarize this entire chapter in basically two words. I hope that's a help to you. I already mentioned to you that it's basically just one instance. One thing happens. And it's a thing that happens specifically after Luke has given us at the end of chapter 2 some sort of grand big picture ideas of what's happening. The end of chapter 2 is sort of a 30,000 foot look at the life of the early church. And you're seeing things. They were devoted to teaching. And then in verse 43, awe was coming upon all of them because Peter, the apostles, were doing many signs and wonders. That's what it tells us. Verse 46 tells us that they were breaking bread together in homes and going to the temple. And so there's this establishing scene. The last six verses of Acts chapter 2 is sort of an establishing scene, right? In general, these are the kinds of things that the church was doing. And then Acts chapter 3 invites us into the specificity of life with the apostles. It's like that crane shot in the beginning of a movie over the top of a city, right? That eventually gets narrower and narrower and narrower and goes into the window of an apartment. And we are now seeing specifically what is meant by Luke that the apostles were doing signs and wonders, what it looked like for them to engage in the temple. And this is an experience, this is an example He's given us this huge picture and then he says, for example, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And so to summarize this particular chapter, the two words we're going to use are sign and sermon. Sign and sermon. There's a sign and a sermon. You might say there's a wonder and a word. But that's just nerdy alliteration talking, right? I was trying to think of words like a guffaw and gospel. Um, there was... Uh, There's a lot of different things you could come up with, right? I'll spare you my list. The point is a sign and a sermon, right? That's basically what happens. A sign takes place, and then there's a sermon that explains the thing that takes place. And so I'm going to go through. I'm going to comment on the wonder that takes place, this mighty work that is done. I want to comment on the specifics of it. I'm going to mention a little bit about signs in general and then jump straight into Peter's explanation. In other words, his word. What does he have to say about what just took place? And I think that'll get us all the way through the text. That's my hope anyway. And I'm praying that we learn the kinds of things that God would have us uh, learn today. Here's what we see. Peter and John are going up to the temple. And they're going up to the temple at a specific time, at the hour of prayer. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, right? They're going up. And it's a practice of theirs, apparently, to go up to the temple. Now, we don't know exactly why they're going all the time. We do know, at least at some degree, because of the things that take place, they're going there in a missional kind of way, right? They were Jewish people. They were raised on the law. They understood the prophets. They knew the stories. They knew the history. And they were, they had met Jesus. They were pulled out of Judaism. So they are very, very clearly Jewish Christians. And so in some sense, for those that go to the temple, they are going there, I'm sure, out of an act of compassion and empathy for those who would be there. They desire to speak winsomely into that world about this Jesus that they have met and loved. I think it's also clear, however, that in some way they have not given up all of the trappings of what you might call institutional religion at this point. They did not meet Jesus and say, just give me a latte and a Max Lucado devotional and I'm fine, right? 
They, they did not give up all of the trappings of institutional religion. I do not believe they're going to the temple to sacrifice. Hebrews makes it very clear. Christ is the final sacrifice. They're not going up to sacrifice. They're not going up because their sins need to be made an atonement for. Jesus has become atonement. But they have not neglected the rhythms, some of them even the religious relig- rhythms of their people. So they're going up to this temple. And can you see them walking? This gate, it says it's called the beautiful gate. And I, I wonder if that was like an official title. Like, is that on the sign next to it? Is this just offhand the way they described it? Like, which guy was it? No, not that one, the beautiful guy. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's just shorthand, like everyone knows it's appealing. Some people think this is a gate that apparently the temple had numerous gates. Some people think this was a gate called Nicanor that was on the east side of the temple. In the description that I read, I don't remember all the nerdy stats on it, but here's what I got as I'm reading it. I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, I can totally see it. The chariot's coming around and there's marble, big bronze door that it takes like three men to open as it goes into the gate. And there at this gate, apparently, it's a common practice for men like this guy who was lame from birth to come and be placed there to receive alms. Now, there's a few things that we learn from this. One is that Luke is, is, uh, is careful to say a man lame from birth. Now, Luke is a physician, right? So you might just think he's getting his doctor on at this point, right? He, he's like, he's naming these things. It's surprising that he doesn't say a man lame from birth. It was his third metatarsal. That's the problem, right? Is it was fused and he couldn't walk. You know what I mean? Like maybe he knew some of that stuff. But he says lame from birth. The reason he probably includes instances like this is because historically in Jewish religion, people who were lame or people who were blinded, the issue was treated differently if the person was blind or lame from birth. It was seen as a much bigger miracle. And so Luke is not just giving us lame from birth to give a historical account of the person. It's to set up the power of what's going to take place. In other words, the guy was really lame. And I know we use that in kind of a, kind of a funny way now. <clears throat> he was... He was lame sauce. Okay, this guy was, he was lame from birth. And part of you say that is because there's not a lot of one-year-olds faking lameness, right? But this, this person was known as someone who was lame from birth, and they go and they set him down. This also instructs us about something about the Jewish people at this time. I think it's very tempting for us to create a caricature of Jewish people at this time as all of them being exactly like the Pharisees. This is going to be significant for us because in a few moments we're going to see that Peter used this occasion to speak the gospel into the situation. And when you speak the gospel in any situation, you're not speaking out into the air of theory. You're speaking to real life humans who have a background and have a worldview and have a religious system. And they need to integrate and figure out where does Jesus fit. And what we're seeing is apparently it was common practice for devout God-fearing Jews to come in and to help men like this. They would give alms. And I think that's significant because I know when I read the New Testament, I think there was only two kinds of people. Complete pagan Gentiles who probably were out like sacrificing humans or something just way off the end, right? Or there was those spawn of Satan, serpent, whitewashed tomb Pharisees who were the worst And if they saw a lame guy outside there, they would step on his arms. You know what I mean? Like, you just get this idea that it's bad people. We've already seen, and you're going to see it again and again and again, that in large part, not every every Jew was a Pharisee. 
And even you saw in chapter 2, right? Just one page to the, before, in, two chapter, in chapter 2, verse 5. How are the men who have come there been described? They're devout men. Devout men who have come to Jerusalem who are worshiping. There's a picture here that gets picked up. And the reason that we're saying this is that the people who are coming to the temple at the hour of prayer, many of them loved God. They genuinely desired to do what is right. They wanted to give alms to the poor and to the needy, people who needed help. And I think this all plays into what happens in a little bit later when Peter begins to speak to them and calls to them from the Word of God in the Old Testament. So this man gets laid down there, and he sees Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he asks for alms, right? You know the story. This is the section that when I was a kid growing up from the King James, this seemed like this was felt board magic, right? This was like the, the lame man, and this was silver and gold have I none, right? You guys remember this part? I mean, this is big time. This is like, this is an amazing moment. And so then our translation just says something more. I have no silver and gold, right? What happened to silver and gold have I none? So they say, we don't have any money for you, but they desire to meet his need. And obviously this miracle takes place. This miracle is enacted in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. That's going to be significant for Peter later on. Luke takes great pains. How many times is he going to tell us that he was walking, leaping up, stood, began to walk, entered the temple, walking, leaping, praising, saw him walking, praising. This guy apparently was healed. That's the point that we're trying to get from the edge of this section, right? This guy was healed. And like you would think, people are beginning to wonder and say, what is this? And what this is, is a sign, right? I think, does everybody clear when we understand what this means? This is a sign of something. And I think what Peter begins to speak to in a moment is a fundamental fact about signs that we often disregard and do not understand. You know what a sign is for, right? A sign points to something else. A sign is never given for itself, on its own merits, just sign. The sign's purpose is to point to something of substance. A sign is given to point to substance. That is what's happening. And yet, isn't the story of the New Testament over and over and over again? Religious people love signs for the sake of signs. That's what they're excited about. They want the miracle, the sign. They don't understand that it's always pointing out to something else. I saw a funny thing on the interwebs a couple of months ago. Maybe you're familiar um, Facebook.com, things like that. And a lot of people put these lists on them, right? There's all these lists. In fact, it's like hard to even go there anymore. Everything is just lists. And, but one of them that caught my eye was this, uh, it was a list of signs that seemed needless and pointless. Like why, why the sign? And my favorite one of the entire list was a sign. It was a big, ye- big yellow caution sign. It said, caution, the edges of this sign are sharp. <laughs> And that's all it said. That's just the whole that was the purpose of the sign, right? Now the reason that sign makes the list is the sign is entirely and completely pointless. It points to nothing else. It serves no purpose. And one of the gifts of being a human, one of the gifts of being able to reason, to have the, the image of God implanted on us, is that we should never forget that signs point to a greater substance. I know that the caution yellow sign thing maybe didn't make the point, and so I think C.S. Lewis illustrated this in a, in a much better way. At one point, Lewis, talking about the gift that it is, that humans can see something 
and then consider what it points to. Talked about training his dog. And he said that one of the wonders of training his dog is that he could try to feed his dog by pointing to things. And if there was a massive T-bone steak across the room, he could speak to the dog. He could point with his finger to the dog. And with great excitement and joy, the dog would run to him and lick his finger. In other words, his dog... Now, I know many of you, this might be an exercise in missing the point, and you will ironically make the point that we're making. (laughs) But some of you will say, like, well, now some dogs are hunting dogs. If you point, they'll go and they will. I I am not a canine connoisseur. All I'm saying is C.S. Lewis's dog, okay? C.S. Lewis's dog illustrated to him the potential that we all have to believe that the thing that points is the gift itself. The dog could not figure out that his finger is pointing to a greater substance. And so every single time he would just run and lick his finger and then look at him like, what? What Why are you not giving me something greater? And in this moment, the temptation that is happening with this verse is that they would miss, the people would miss what the sign is supposed to point to. A little aside about miracles in general. It's been said that miracles are an invasion of a future land into our current situation. Miracles are an invasion of the future restoration of all things into our present situation. The miracles are a gift because they tell us this is what life with God is like. When God enacts miracles, He gives us a picture of a place where no one is born lame and lame from birth. And so miracles are a beautiful thing. Miracles are an astounding thing. We should pray for them often. But Peter is extremely, extremely reticent to let them rest in the sign. This has been an issue for all of the New Testament. It's not just Peter that runs into this. In a few chapters, we're going to come across a guy named Simon, Simon the magician, right? And he sees the apostles doing all these miraculous things. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to set up a sideshow. He says, hey, can you rub a little bit of that off on me? Like, I could do amazing signs. And people from miles around would come and pay me money just to see the signs. And constantly, we find Peter learning from Christ, learning from Jesus to point away from the signs to the substance. I'm going to show you a passage in Matthew chapter 9 that illustrates this sort of in a reverse kind of way. Matthew chapter 9, I think that Peter has learned a good lesson from Jesus because Jesus encountered the same sort of thing. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. I want you to note verse 6, because I think it informs the rest of Acts chapter 3 that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, this sign has been enacted. Do you see the connection there? So that you have confidence that your sins are forgiven 
this miracle has taken place. That's the lesson. That's what's... And Jesus does it sort of reluctantly, right? Jesus is constantly like, I, you're, you're asking for minor works and I want to major in things like freedom from guilt and shame and sin. You're asking for pennies and I want to give you an inheritance of grace in my blood, right? Jesus is constantly fighting this fight back and forth. But verse 6, six, six Matthew chapter 9 instructs us, and we know this, that Peter learned the lesson well. Peter learned the lesson well. So that you may know that I can forgive sins, this miracle is going to take place. Do you see the connection there? Never the sign in and of itself. Always the sign given to point to something else. That's the lesson that Jesus taught us, and Peter has learned it well. So let's drop back down into Acts chapter 3. It's really an astounding moment that after this sign, a sermon comes. You might think to yourself, well, you already told us that Peter's personality is totally like this, and he's probably just the guy that that's all he does. He just talks all the time, right? But here's a few things, comments about his sermon that I think are interesting to me. One is this particular fact, that he uses every single opportunity to point back to Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Peter, in the moment of opportunity here, he seizes it. He doesn't have to have those kind of arguments you have the next day when you think to yourself and say all the things you wish you'd said yesterday, right? And no one else does this. No one else replays conversations and arguments. And the next day, you are just the champion victor of logic and wit. You know what I mean? No one is more witty than you 24 hours after the argument. No one. You got this, right? They're so fortunate you, you were kind, right? It's not that you didn't think of it. And I want you to note how seamlessly, effortlessly, I cannot say that word. I've said it three times today and I've dropped it. Seamlessly, Peter takes the opportunity of people's wondering. We find out that all these people rushed over to them, utterly astonished, it says in verse 11. They rushed to them. And immediately, Peter interprets the entire situation around him. And what's the question that he's asking? How do I connect this to Jesus? How do I connect this to Jesus? How do I connect these people to Jesus? How do I connect the power that has taken place back to Jesus? Because he is devoted to, and he's given his entire life, his entire experience has been reshaped by the gospel. Have you met anyone or experienced a relationship like that where someone is devoted to something in such a way that without effort they can connect whatever you're talking about back to, to their point? No one? Running or exercise or CrossFit or I'm trying to think of things that have like religious-like devotion, right? Um, college football, for instance, right? I made the illustration this morning at 9 that you know, there's some people that just, they seamlessly connect every experience that's happening to the thing that they know and love. And conversations are not awkward for them. It's not a minor thing. Someone is talking about huge disappointment and unmet expectations. And immediately they think to themselves, like, Tony Romo, yeah, right? Like, what if, he, what, if he had, uh, what if he'd not thrown that interception, Right? You're talking about great, like, comeback stories. They were healed. It was amazing. I couldn't believe this happened. It was shocking. Shocking. Just like, just like field goals returned for touchdowns against Alabama. <laughs> Remember? Shocking. Amazing. People seamlessly drop into that thing that has captured their imagination and their heart. I think that's the point. And so, yes, Peter's a bit of a loudmouth. And yes, Peter has been given a mantle of preaching. Yes, 
But there's a lesson to be learned that in the midst of this, he's asking one question. People are running. Miracles are swirling. And people are astounded. How do I connect it to Jesus? So the fact that a sermon comes at all is amazing. I would have maybe wanted to walk around and been like, do I have these powers? You know, I'd be like, just hold on, everybody, and just go and test things out. Rise up! Walk! Alive! You know what I mean? Like, I would have been tempted to get hung up on the sign, but Peter just always wants to point away. How do I use this sign? He's been given power in Jesus' name. How do I point it back to Jesus? I want you to note the other thing that's interesting about his sermon. He uses the Old Testament. Now, I know this might not be astounding to you, but I want to make a point very, very clearly that when Peter decides to describe Jesus Christ, he goes back to the Old Testament. All gospel preaching in Acts is Old Testament preaching. And I want that to rest on us for a little while, and I think there's a couple of reasons for it. Here's the major reason first, and then I'll give you the takeaway. The major reason is this, because the people he was speaking to respected the Old Testament and knew it well. He was commending himself to them by speaking from an authority that they trusted. The takeaway from us is we might want to say to ourselves, have we too easily neglected and sort of tossed to the side the Old Testament? But he begins to speak from the Old Testament. Men of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He's going to the patriarchs and the prophets. He talks about Isaiah, this this servant, suffering servant motif that was all through the Old Testament. He's calling out to them and he's saying, brothers, you have been waiting on a Messiah like this. A God who made covenant to bless you. A God who promised a Savior. And not, not just any Savior, but a certain kind of Savior. A suffering servant. And Jesus has been given to fulfill all of these, all of these prophecies. And he's being wise. I want us to consider when we drop into conversation about Jesus to be winsome. Speak in ways that speak to the heart of someone that you're connecting with. Evangelism and witness and talking about churchy kind of things is never done theoretically out into, an, into the ether of blackness. You're speaking to people, souls, with backgrounds and connections and commitments. And so Peter pulls up the thing that these devout, almsgiving, praying at the ninth hour kind of Jewish people would have found authoritative. He pulls up the Old Testament. He's thinking to himself, oh, do I have to get the scrolls out on you? (laughs) I mean, like, is that where this is going? And he begins speaking something that's authoritative. You do this all the time, naturally, in any other field, right? When you want to make a point, when you want to make a point, and you have a choice between a source of information that is authoritative and a source of information you found in the back of a cereal box, right? It's easy. If you're going to have a physics throwdown with someone, you're talking about relativity with your friend, it gets really heated all up in math club, right? And you just say like, oh, it's on. Like me and you tomorrow after school, four o'clock, it's physics throwdown, right? Like this is going down. And all the people is like, they're like looking around. They're talking to their friends like tomorrow it's going down. Relativity and velocity and vectors like tomorrow after school, right? And you got to build your case for what you're arguing. So the next day the crowd comes and you stand out and you begin to speak. You've got to bring a list of sources, right? And guy goes first and he says, this is why I believe this about physics. Looks down his sources. The first three are Wikipedia. And you're thinking to yourself like, okay, right? 
And then finally for his penultimate, his penultimate point, right? He gets to the, his climax and everybody's waiting and hanging on every word. And he says, I conclude thusly because of the comment that I found on YouTube video 479. Guy Brown Hat 37 said, right? And he reads this off with power. And what does everyone do in the crowd? Like, are, is this guy kidding? <laughs> is, he, is he joking? He wants to rewrite a physics book because of Brown Hat Guy 37 on YouTube video? Really? Right? And then what does the next guy, the next guy do in response? Maybe this is you. Put yourself in the hero spot. Everybody needs to be a hero now and then, right? And you just bust out 24 hours, bleary-eyed speech about Einstein. And that therein exhausts my list of physics. (laughs) (laughs) And Einstein friends. And like all these people, right? Like Mr. Vector himself. And you're just, you're quoting off just a pantheon of the giants of of the world. You get to the main point, right? And you begin to quote from the guy who wrote the textbook in the class that you've been in. And you're doing something there. You're not just trying to win the argument because it's true. You're using truth. And of course, Peter's doing that. But he's going to sources that people would be familiar with, that had weight. There was not merely an intellectual assignment of power behind these men. There was a, a demographic history of family connection for thousands of years for Peter to drop in and commend Jesus to them and say, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It meant something to them. He was winsome. He was wise in the way that he engaged. He found threads of grace to the Messiah all the way through part of life and a part of tradition and a part of religion that they would have been already committed to seeing. Something that we can take from this as a takeaway. I think sometimes the names of our testaments hinder us. I had a question, I had a conversation with a very mature, sweet, praying, awesome Christian guy one time. But at the end of the conversation, I asked him a question and it had something to do with the Old Testament. And at the end of it, he said, you know what, I got to be honest with you. It's like, I, I think the, the Old Testament could be helpful. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's helpful, but really for Christians, like the New Testament's all we need. That, that's all we need. So he's like, I just kind of don't care about it. And I, I was just sort of like, what? <laughs> like, what? Can I say it again? All gospel preaching in the New Testament is Old Testament preaching. The New Testament is a sequel, not built on God getting it wrong for thousands of years. The New Testament is the culmination of God's promises for thousands of years. It's built on a foundation of sturdy faithfulness of God to His people. So I'm going to start a new, I'm going to start like a a petition. We need to rename, especially for our generation, we need to rename Old Testament sounds rather, how shall I say it, old, right? Old. Nobody likes old things, right? Hey, would you like to learn about old, old physics or the new good stuff, right? I have an old car here or a brand new one. And old seems to be like we could easily just sort of throw it away. So my petition is going to read, let's rename it First and Second Testament. First Testament, right? So that's like you're starting to watch the movie and it's intriguing and it's great, but there's all these illusions and there's all these comments and there's characters popping up and you think to yourself, what did I miss? And then the person says, oh, oh, this is the sequel. I mean, all the threads come together and it's amazing. You can get it. You can get the gospel here. 
But you wouldn't believe the first part. The first testament. Jesus has been promised. And Jesus has been shown in so many types all the way through the Old Testament. Let's not neglect the history that God has shown for his people, especially in our day and age, because you start bringing up the Bible, the Old Testament is the first to be mocked, right? The Old Testament is the clumsy, is the kind of clumsy, ham-fisted, God without a PR department kind of thing, right? And we, we're so careful to be, well, that, yeah, listen, Romans, let's go, right? You do not need to make excuses for the beautiful history of God's interaction with his people in both testaments. And I think we should learn from that. I want you to note, though, that as winsome as Peter is being, as beautiful as it is that he's connecting Jesus to a larger worldview and using the first testament in a, in a powerful way, that eventually he has to bring it around to something that, that will be understandably a little bit offensive. And here's the truth of Christianity as, as, much as, as much as we want to talk around and explain it away. This is the truth of Christianity in a short, short sentence. The only way to God is through Jesus and the only way to Jesus is through repentance. And that is where Peter lands. He says to them, you murdered the one granted to you. You killed the author of life. You acted in ignorance. Repent. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. Do you know that eventually to commend Jesus, to point to any of the signs we see in the world, to commend Jesus is going to be to call people from their sins? There's no other way around. At the end of Acts chapter 2, how did it end? What must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent. Repent. Acts chapter 3. He uses this moment to proclaim the gospel. And what does he say to them? Brothers, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. And he could call them to repent for a few reasons. He can call them to repent because he knows that the greater miracle, greater than a lame man walking, is that God has absorbed all of his wrath, all of punishment, every bit of condemnation has been placed on Jesus Christ. And you can call people to repent of sins because sins have been taken care of in Jesus. Your sins may be blotted out. And what Peter is saying is do not get hung up on the minor miraculous things of someone walking temporarily on this earth and miss the greater miracle. Do you see what God is offering you in Jesus Christ? Freedom from your sins. He can also ask them to repent because he knows that repentance is the path of blessing to them. This is uncomfortable to convince someone that they're a sinner, that they have needs, that they need to confess their their rebellion and their hard-heartedness towards God can be a very offensive thing. But Peter can do it because he knows this is the path of blessing for them. He says, repent therefore in turn that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come. When you call someone, you call your own heart to repent of sin, the temptation is to think that you're calling yourself to something harder. You're in, in fact, by God's Spirit, by the work of Jesus Christ, you're calling yourself and you're calling others to freedom, to light yokes, to rest. He says to them in 25 and 26, 
God covenanted with Abraham in order to bless you and to bless all the nations. He says to them, don't you see that the path to blessing is repentance? There's no other path than confessing sin and facing sin and turning away from sin. That's the message of the Gospel. Spurgeon put it this way, and in a very ironic illustration of what I was talking about earlier, I'm now going to commend my arguments to you by the use of a dead man named Charles Spurgeon. Oh, you might say, Spurgeon said this, right? That's the vibe. That's, what I, that's hopefully the vibe that I'm going to get a little bit. This is Spurgeon commenting on this particular passage and the importance of repentance. See then, ye that are unsaved. Ye is a fabulous second person plural and we don't have it. We don't have it anymore. Y'all. Y'all that are unsaved. Before I leave this point, see what it is we are bound to require of you this morning. It is that ye repent and be converted. We are not satisfied with having your ear nor your eyes. We're not content with having you gathered in the house of worship. It is all in vain that you have come here except that you repent and be converted. We are not come to tell you that you must reform a little and mend your ways in some degree except you put your trust in Christ and forsake your old way of life and become new creatures in Christ Jesus. You must perish. This, nothing short of this, is the gospel requirement. No church going, no chapel going will save you. No bowing of the knee, no outward form of worship, no pretensions and professions to godliness. You must repent of your sins and forsake them. If you do not do this, neither shall your sins be blotted out. Repentance is Peter's message. Repentance takes a number of things, if you want to boil it down practically. Repentance takes sight, spiritual sight, It is a gift of God to be able to look back at your life and to say, I've been wrong. Repentance begins with a kind of 20-20 vision, a sort of holy sight back on your life, to look back and say, I never saw it this way before. But now, for whatever reason, the things that I loved, I love less. The things that I loved, I now have begun to hate. To see sin is a gospel work. And repentance begins with seeing sin as it really is. Oh, that God would give all of us eyes to see and name sin. The next thing we need in the act of repentance, this word which means to turn around, to agree with God and to turn around and walk away from. Next thing we need is honesty. Many of us have been brought to the point of seeing. You've wept and you've been stirred to sadness even. And you look back at your life and yet there in that moment you're tempted to self-justify and to lie and to cover up and to pretend so you need honesty to call it what it is. And more than that, you need courage. One of the things I've been talking with our kids about and there's moments of discipline and I'm, I'm sitting with one of our boys and we're looking together. We're doing this practice of repentance, of looking back over, okay, last night, what took place? What happened at school? What happened with your brother? And I'm talking about looking at those things through God's eyes. Let's call things what they are. Let's be honest about them. The temptation is here to lie. And then even in that moment when I'm sitting with my kids and I understand, we see it. It's there together. We've been honest about what's there. We know it's sin. And I'm talking to my sons and I'm saying, the next thing you need in repentance right now, son, is courage. You need courage because everything inside of you thinks that you're going to protect yourself by hiding in sin. You think you're going to protect yourself from what's going to come. My boy's looking at me and he knows. 
He's seeing the sin and he's honest about what it is, but to confess it with his mouth takes courage. He knows all of the possibilities of discipline. He knows all the things that he could lose. And it takes courage in that moment to confess, this is who I really am and this is what I've really done and this is what I really need. And finally, repentance takes a whole ton of humility. Humility to say, I have not been perfect. Humility to say that I need sins to be blotted out. Humility to say that I have been walking in a path where I am despairing of these things. I need refreshing to come into my life. But if we do not repent, we do not have Christ. It is that simple. There is no other way to God than through Jesus, and there is no way to Jesus except the path of humble, courageous, honest naming and walking away from sin. That's what Acts is telling us. We can learn from Peter's example in this. He's dedicated his entire life to helping people make the connections between where they're at and who Jesus is. We've invited you to be a part of this process, to pray for people, to pray that they have that kind of vision of their life, to call sin what it is. We've called it One Life, and we encourage you to continue to be praying for people and engaging people. Uh, We made a little video from Pastor Dave that illustrates someone who engaged him in this similar kind of way, and uh, we hope it's a help to you. Uh, So we're going to watch that video now. I'll come up and pray after that. It was 2 a.m. God was 